From California to New Hampshire, Nebraska to Georgia, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, inflation is at 9.1%, but has it peaked? And are we headed into an economic recession? E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation is here with the answers. The primary election calendar hits high gear again in August. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story on the state-by-state races. Congress is preparing massive corporate welfare subsidies for the microchip industry. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from the Cato Institute's Scott Linscombe. And President Biden has returned from a failed trip to Saudi Arabia in an effort to get more oil production. But his own policies are at fault for our nation's lack of energy independence. So says Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA on this week's American Radio Journal Commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. As inflation hits a 40-year high, fears of an economic recession are growing. E.J. Antoni is a research fellow for regional economics in the Center for Data Analysis at the Heritage Foundation. He joins us now to talk about the nation's worsening economy. E.J., welcome to American Radio Journal. E.J., 9.1%, the inflation rate in June. As you take a look at that, is this a situation where we've hit a peak, or does the economy show signs that this might go even into double digits? You know, I really wish I could say we've hit a peak, but right now all the data is telling me that we don't hit a peak until September at the earliest. It is a very real possibility that we hit double digits on the CPI The PPI, which is the producer price index that measures wholesale inflation, the prices that businesses are paying, that has been in double digits for many months now. And those are all prices that businesses eventually have to pass on to consumers. So we are definitely not out of the woods yet. Energy, of course, has been one of the main drivers here. And for folks at the kitchen table looking at their monthly bills, the cost of gasoline for their cars or trucks or whatever has been at near record high levels. Do you see energy as continuing to feed the inflationary cycle or are we starting to see the economy cool off a bit so those prices can come down? No, energy is definitely a big, big component of all this. In fact, one of the reasons why so many analysts missed the most recent CPI number was specifically because they did not factor in not the energy prices themselves, but how much the energy prices are affecting everything we do, everything we buy. So the core inflation, which excludes food and energy, shot up much faster than expected and explains a lot of what the analysts missed. Food and energy now are trickling down into everything else. And so we are seeing energy contribute to the the price increases, not just in the energy sector itself, not just gasoline, not just diesel, not just natural gas, but that is causing prices across the board to just skyrocket. And on top of that, we are seeing the Biden administration trying to push through here before the summer recess, summer congressional recess, yet more big spending, which also requires more big borrowing and or printing of money. Is that something that could add fuel to this inflation fire? 
Oh, absolutely. So the, the key here is to remember that inflation is fundamentally a tax. Now, it's a hidden tax, right? It's not a tax that Congress has to vote on and that the president has to sign, but it is still a tax. And it is how the government pays for, in this case, five, six, seven trillion dollars of unfunded liabilities. Now, give me one tax in the history of the world that was ever reduced by the government spending more money all wait. And the answer is there is no such tax. No tax has ever been reduced by government spending more money. So the solution here is for the government to spend, borrow, and print less money, not more. The absolute last thing we need is another trillion-dollar boondoggle package coming out of Washington, D.C. For the average family, EJ, this inflation that we've had, and it's been going on now for about a year or so, what has it done to their buying power? How badly eroded has our buying power become? I can't emphasize enough how much the middle class has just been crushed by this inflation. If you're wealthy, if you own a lot of stocks, real estate, et cetera, things that tend to inflate, tend to go up in price, you are somewhat protected. But those who don't have those great assets, they are just absolutely getting killed. For the average worker, they have lost the equivalent of $3,400 in annual income if you compare today's incomes and prices to the time when Biden was inaugurated. So in just 18 months, this is why he has earned the nickname from some people of the pay cut president. Because even though this administration likes to talk a lot about how wages have gone up, and that's true, by the way, they really have. Wages have gone up over 5% under this president. But earnings, once you account for not just how much your wages have gone up, but how much you can actually buy with those earnings. In other words, we adjust for prices, all this inflation. You find that these numbers have actually gone down and not up. So if you're a typical family with both parents working, both making the average income, not just $3,400 in losses, but $6,800 in the equivalent of lost annual income. I mean, that is just devastating. That's more than a lot of families spend on things like food and vacations combined. And all of this in a very short period of time. Concurrent with all of this, the Federal Reserve, EJ, has been now trying to create higher interest rates in order to bring inflation under control to cool the economy off. What can we look forward to a few days from now when the Fed meets for its July meeting? We are anticipating yet another significant hike. We are, but we have to keep in mind that the last time inflation was this high, the key interest rate from the Federal Reserve was over 13%. So the fact is that today it's less than 2%, and the Fed is just laughably behind the curve when it comes to interest rate hikes. So although a lot of hay is being made about the fact that they're going to do a large, most likely going to do a large uh, interest rate hike, this is very similar to, if you want to think of it as, imagine you're a runner and the gun goes off, the race starts, your competitors are halfway around the track, and you haven't even moved yet, and you decide to make one giant leap forward. Is that progress? I suppose it is. But again, you are just so laughably behind the curve that it is too little too late. Putting all of this together then, the inflation rate hitting an over 40-year high, the Fed having to raise interest rates, trying to cool off the economy, are we in danger of actually heading into an economic recession? Oh, not just in danger. I think it's already here. The first quarter of the year, we had negative economic growth, negative 1.8%. 
Uh, it looks like the second quarter is most certainly going to be negative as well. And that's the textbook definition of a recession, when you have two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. Now, there are other factors that are often considered by the National Bureau of Economic Research, and they're the ones who more or less officially date the timing for recessions, when they begin and when they end. But those criteria are flexible. Just just one example was the recession in 2020. Even though it wasn't long enough to meet the classic definition of a recession, because it was so widespread and so deep for two months, they decided to make that a recession. So there is, at this point, there is essentially no escaping it. You know, you can't just spend, borrow, and print six, seven, eight trillion dollars and expect there not to be severe negative consequences for the economy. We have been talking with E.J. Antoni, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, which, of course, is in Washington, D.C. E.J., tell us a little bit about the Heritage Foundation. Also, where can folks go on the web to learn more? So they can find us at heritage.org. And the Heritage Foundation is, is basically here to help America build a society where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society can flourish all together. And the foundation's mission is to formulate and promote public policies that are going to be based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, and traditional American values, and all of that together with a strong national defense. E.J. Antoni of the Heritage Foundation. E.J., thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. At the Club for Growth, Scott Parkinson has been keeping an eye on all the various state-by-state primaries that have been taking place over the last few months. A bit of a break for us in July, but August has a very busy schedule when it comes to primaries. Scott, welcome back. Great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. Before we get to the primaries that are coming up in August, the state of Maryland did have a primary this past week. They had a gubernatorial race, which has somewhat national implications to it, and a key congressional race. You want to touch on that briefly for us? Starting with the governor's race, Larry Hogan's termed out, not running for re-election. And on one hand, these governors, they always want to pick who their successor is going to be. And unfortunately for Larry Hogan, Donald Trump also cares a lot about getting involved in these races and making his own political uh, imprint when it comes to who the Republican nominee is going to be. And in this instance, Larry Hogan lost resoundingly against a candidate named Dan Cox, who had the support of President Trump. Cox is one of those America First MAGA candidates that I think really excite a lot of the Republican primary voters. And Larry Hogan, over the last several years, has been sort of a Republican nemesis and contrast to what we're seeing out of the Trump movement. Hogan has supported a lot of the draconian measures that the liberal legislature and generally that other Democrats in state houses throughout America are supporting. And so, you know, a lot of folks actually think that Hogan is kind of a rhino and other folks think that he's a patriot. So, This election was uh, really a test of Trump against Hogan, and Trump won. And in Maryland's 4th Congressional District, a key primary, correct? Yeah, there was a state representative named Neil Parrott. That district has changed dramatically due to redistricting. It's become a very good opportunity for Republican pickup. And we were pretty surprised. Neil won with over 60% of the vote in in a competitive primary. What will likely be the marquee race of the month of August is going to happen in the state of Wyoming, a small state with huge 
to use a term, implications. Liz Cheney is up for re-election there. And Donald Trump, of course, doing everything he can to defeat Liz Cheney. So, Scott, what is the lay of the land these days in Wyoming? Well, interesting enough, Club for Growth PAC just released new polling showing Harriet Hageman with a 28% lead against Liz Cheney in the Republican primary. There is another candidate also running named Anthony Bouchard. He's a state senator. And obviously, plurality is going to win there. There's not a runoff. But the interesting dynamic in Wyoming is that there can be crossover votes. And so what our methodology assumed in the 28% lead with Harriet Hageman was that 13% of the voters were crossover Democrats that are coming in to support Liz Cheney. At the same time, we also adjusted the methodology to 20% turnout and 25% turnout for Democrats, and it still shows Hageman running away with this thing. In August, we're going to have the final nail in the coffin of Liz Cheney's congressional career, but I have a feeling that she's going to probably continue to poke her head up uh, when it comes to future elections. A lot of people in Washington are saying, well, Liz Cheney knows she's losing. She's got all this money. Maybe she'll run for president of the United States against Donald Trump. And maybe she'll run as an independent. Maybe she'll run as a Republican to take him on in some of these debates. She's obviously joined with Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats on the January 6th commission. Adam Kinzinger already gave up his career. He, he lost out due to redistricting. And many of the other Republicans that supported impeachment of Donald Trump or supported the January 6th commission have recognized that those votes were political blunders and huge, huge vulnerabilities for their own electoral futures. Liz Cheney's going to lose in August. We're going to say goodbye to Cheney representation. And Harriet Hageman will be a, a champion for deregulation and economic freedom when it comes to innovation for new businesses and you know, really fighting back against the radical left on a lot of these environmental policies that are stifling Wyomingites. A state where Republicans have a pickup opportunity, Scott, is Arizona. How is that primary shaping up? Well, this is one of my favorite primaries of the entire cycle. Club for Growth PAC endorsed Blake Masters in that race. He's running against State Attorney General Mark Brunovich, and he's also running against a businessman named Jim Lehman. Masters is definitely in the lead right now. A lot of folks didn't think that could happen. We've been heavily engaged through Club for Growth Action with independent expenditures, supporting Masters' candidacy. And uh, right now, we think that he's got over 10% lead. We've released public polling there as well. And the bottom line is, on August 2nd, Arizona's got other congressional races that are very, very competitive in the 2nd District, and I think the 6th District, potentially in the 4th District as well. These, this state has two Democrat senators right now, Mark Kelly and Kirsten Cinema, And this is the race to take on Mark Kelly with Blake Masters in the general election. It's going to be one of the biggest races of the entire cycle, without a doubt. I think the best or second best flip opportunity in the United States Senate for Republicans. And we feel really, really good about the future of Blake Masters winning that race. We're going to keep an eye on these and other primaries, which we will discuss in more detail over the coming weeks with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Well, today we kind of focus on Club for Growth PAC. If anybody wants to learn about all the candidates that the club is supporting throughout America, 
you can check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you. Corporate cronyism is alive and well in the halls of Congress, where massive subsidies for the microchip industry are being queued up. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute. This week, the U.S. Senate began what's probably the final push to pass a $76 billion bill that would provide new subsidies for domestic semiconductor manufacturing. This bill, the CHIPS Act, is often pitched as an attempt to improve America's competitiveness against China. But as my guest today will explain, this is really just good old-fashioned crony capitalism. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Scott Lincecum. He is the Director of General Economics at the Cato Institute and the head of Cato's Center for Trade Policy. And he joins us now to talk about the CHIPS Act, which, Scott, I think is moving through the Senate basically as we speak right now. Thanks for taking some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics here, Scott, because this is probably not an issue that most people are paying a lot of attention to. So just tell us a little bit about what the CHIPS Act is and why it is moving through Congress right now. Yeah, so the CHIPS Act is essentially a subsidy package. The United States federal government would be doling out tens of billions of dollars to semiconductor manufacturers in the United States to build and produce semiconductors here domestically. So giant companies like Intel, TSMC, and Samsung uh, would be eligible for uh, several billion dollars in government grants, along with some tax credits for buying manufacturing equipment, that they would defray their costs for adding additional uh, capacity in the U.S. semiconductor market. This is being driven uh, in some ways by the recent shortage in in semiconductor chips, right? Uh, Most notably that affected car manufacturers over the past year, but uh, several other industries affected as well. It's being driven by that. But the, the bigger question here, and maybe one that's not being asked enough in Washington, is whether these big companies, Intel and the, the rest of them that you named, whether they need the money to stay competitive. So do they? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons why they don't need the subsidy. I mean, look, obviously, given the semiconductor shortages and given the prices that increased during the pandemic, uh, semiconductor manufacturers have made making record profits. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars in free cash flow for these multinational behemoths like Intel. The second thing, though, is that the U.S., semiconductor industry is quite strong. Uh, contrary from what you, to what you might hear from Congress or from Intel, in fact, U.S. semiconductor production has gone up in the last couple of decades. U.S. spending on research and development and on other types of innovation have gone up. The United States actually dominates several parts of the semiconductor supply chain, most notably R&D and design. And U.S. companies like NVIDIA are global leaders in those types of, of, of goods and services. So the only area where the United States lags a bit is in actual production. But when you drill into that, you actually see that the United States remains even a global leader in semiconductor manufacturing. We just tend not to make the uh, lowest grade commodity chips. A lot of that is now in China, but that's basically like potato chips. It's not something that really matters for national security or economic security. It's just stuff that goes into our microwaves and our refrigerators. And we also have had a little 
delay in being at the bleeding edge of manufacturing, which is primarily located in Korea and Taiwan right now. But that's not because of Korean and Taiwanese industrial policy or anything like that. It's just because Intel, our national champion, had a couple problems uh, at the bleeding edge, but has dedicated tens of billions of dollars to catching up to those rivals and, again, having the United States at the leading edge of semiconductor technologies. Um, and that gets to the, the last point, is that contrary to, again, what you might hear in Congress, semiconductor manufacturers, whether it's Intel, TSMC, Samsung, Texas Instruments, Global Foundries, you name it, have dedicated uh, about $80 billion in new capital expenditures in the United States to build manufacturing facilities here. No federal subsidies needed. In fact, shovels are already in the ground in Arizona and in Texas and Ohio and elsewhere uh, to build these new facilities. So essentially, the U.S. government is going to pay these cash-rich giant multinational corporations to do what they already want to do. Uh, it's good old classic Washington politics. Yeah, I think that's a great point. These companies are already tremendously profitable, and they are using those profits to make investments in manufacturing here in America. The market is doing the thing it's supposed to do. It doesn't make sense for taxpayers to have to pay for that. We are talking with Scott Lincecum. He is the Director of General Economics for the Cato Institute, and we are talking about the CHIPS Act, this uh, large package of subsidies for semiconductor manufacturers that is moving through the Senate this week. Uh, Scott, I thought we could wrap up here on a bigger point. This, like so much in Washington, it's an issue that's really being driven by politics much more so than economics. Yeah, I mean, if you read things like Politico and the other uh, political magazines here in D.C., what you find out is that this, the primary motivations here are political. Uh, the White House needs a big political win. Congressional Democrats need a big political win. These fabs that are going to get subsidies, these manufacturing facilities, are located in places like Arizona and Ohio, where there are really important Senate elections going on. And on the Republican side, you find out, again, that these facilities tend to be in places that have Republican congressmen as well. And of course, they're going to want to bring home the bacon to their home districts. And then, of course, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer similarly has a lot of semiconductor companies in New York. And he's very he's quite open to his credit, I guess, about bringing home the bacon. Yeah, it's crony capitalism crossed with press release economics. It's all just gross, honestly. But uh, Scott, thanks for talking us through the CHIPS Act. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And again, that is Scott Linscombe. He is the Director of General Economics for the Cato Institute. You can check out his work at Cato.org. Uh, head over to the Cato at Liberty blog to see his latest piece there. Politics, not economics, motivates semiconductor subsidies is the headline. For everything else going on in Washington and around the country this week, click over to Reason.com. And for Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. If Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA were grading the Biden administration on its energy policy, they would get an F minus. Colin explains why on this American Radio Journal commentary. What grade has President Biden earned for his energy policy? For the sake of simplifying the analysis, let's grant him two major points right up front. Let's assume that he's correct in tying carbon emissions from fossil fuels to climate change. And let's also concede the related point that one long-term goal of sound national energy policy for the United States is to reduce carbon emissions from fossil fuels. There are good evidence-based arguments not to concede those points, but let's set them aside in this analysis. 
When Joe Biden assumed the presidency on January 20th, 2021, the U.S. was basically energy independent. There are several ways to define and measure that, so let's look at one of the simpler measures, and let's use the U.S. government's own statistics. You can find them at the U.S. Energy Information Administration on the Internet at EIA.gov. There's a chart that shows 71 years of measurements of U.S. petroleum consumption, production, imports, exports, and the most comprehensive measure, net imports. There's no better, more widely accepted source of energy data than that site, and it showed that in 2020, the last year of the Trump administration, the net imports number became net exports for the first time since 1950, when it was nearly zero. Another very revealing line on that chart is U.S. production. It soared from 2016 to 2020. Then in 2021, the net imports number crossed back into the positive and the U.S. production number headed downwards for the first time since 2008. So when former President Trump boasted, quote, we were energy independent one year ago, close quote, and that, quote, we were exporting energy for the first time ever in the history of our country, close quote, a claim that was widely reported in the media as false, was actually true if he meant petroleum rather than total energy, and the context of his remarks suggests that he was indeed referring to petroleum independence and petroleum exports. As the Heritage Foundation concisely stated in its energy report three weeks ago, it was no secret on the campaign trail that Joe Biden wanted to end America's use of a conventional energy such as coal, oil, and natural gas. Biden's first executive orders in office deployed a sweeping regulatory agenda throughout the executive branch to that end. This radical agenda has been the consistent message and persistent policy choice of this administration. Not just reduce our use of fossil fuels, but end it. His exact words at one campaign stop were, quote, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel, close quote. This policy goal was in effect well before Russia invaded Ukraine. So his excuse that the cause of the increase in gasoline prices is the Putin price hike is not honest. The energy ramifications of the Russian invasion exacerbated the price increase, no question about it. But the price ramifications of the Biden anti-fossil fuel policies had already increased the price of gasoline roughly 50%. The so-called Putin price hike is therefore in large part disinformation. As the U.S. economy recovered from the pandemic, Demand for all fossil fuels, but especially petroleum, naturally increased. Rather than allowing U.S. production to increase to meet the increased demand, Biden chose to clamp down on domestic production and instead go hat in hand to Saudi Arabia to beg them to increase their production. He must consider the brutal and potentially adversarial Saudis more of an ally than U.S. petroleum companies. From a foreign policy standpoint, that's offensive. From an environmental standpoint, 
it is either exactly the same or possibly worse. So there is no sound defense of it. So what's Biden's grade? How can it be anything but F? In summary, the Biden energy policies claiming to place the highest value on reducing the environmental impact of fossil fuels will have no positive movement towards that goal while damaging both our economy and favoring foreign adversaries over allies. Perhaps the right grade is worse than F. Maybe F minus? This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including our newest affiliate, KELOAM, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome to our new listeners in the Mount Rushmore State. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.